It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to talk about something that powers everything from Bitcoin to Tor to Amazon. It's called Distributed Hash Tables. Get your propeller hats on. This is going to be a doozy. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 398, recorded April 3rd, 2013. Distributed Hash Tables. Security Now is brought to you by Rackspace, the open cloud company. At Rackspace, build what you want, where you want, and how you want, all backed by their world-renowned fanatical support. Try it today. Download the open cloud at rackspace.com slash open. And by audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And to kick off the new release of Dimension of Miracles, Audible is sending a lucky winner to Comic-Con. Enter at audible.com slash sweepstakes. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your privacy, your loved ones, your money, your Bitcoin, whatever you got online. And here he is, the king, the king of all, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Every week. You know, I, I mentioned Bitcoin because it's been really in the news of late. They, uh, they exceeded a billion yeah. dollars in a billion U.S. dollars in value, although that says more about how inflated the Bitcoin has, has become uh, as opposed to the, the actual value of it or the amount of Bitcoin in circulation. Well, uh, be careful of the use of the word inflated. It's the value of the Bitcoin. And because inflation is a, it implies a judgment and it's a relative term. Of so course. We, we know that the value of bitcoins is going to go up over time because they, I mean, they've succeeded. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to happen. Because but there's more being made all the time. It, but always less more. So already the curve is... <laughs> Less all, than the demand, you're saying. Already the curve is flattening. It took, actually, technically, the curve has always been flattening. Oh, the rate saying, of production yeah. has always been decreasing. Right. And it, it, it stops in 2040, and there will never be any 2140. more. 2140. Is it 2140? 2140. Oh, okay. Well, we got a wait Unless to Unless the go. New Yorker got it wrong. And, and the reason I brought this up, there's an excellent article. There are two very good articles. There's one at Medium.com by the financial blogger for Reuters that's mm -hmm. uh, kind of more about current events. And then there's a very good summary article in this week's New Yorker about Bitcoin. And more than anything, that tells me Bitcoin's real. If the New Yorker is writing about Bitcoin in a long-form article, it's it's very interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, we've talked about it. In fact, this is the only show, I think, where you'll really hear a deep discussion of the math involved, why crypto, why, why the crypto and the math works in Bitcoin. Well, and some of the articles that have been written have not been as skillfully right. Right. assembled, and they've talked about, oh, well, why would you trust a digital currency that just can be inflated? It's like, okay, this can't be. I mean, you, you, you can't. Governments can print money. There is... There is a, a absolute fixed trajectory 
on the rate at which bitcoins will be created and that's set in stone that's that can't change and the only thing that makes this feasible is that because it's digital you can have have an incredibly small fraction of a bitcoin in a transaction so you know it'd be like if 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 there was if you could actually never have any more money made yet we were continuing to create value which we wish to exchange with money then pennies would become valuable again because because they would have to be now you know and there you would see inflation driven by a, by the fact that the money supply is fixed rather than it being you know as as it is with with governmental you can currency. always print more paper printed. money but uh, you, in the year 2140 approximately there'll be 21 million bitcoins and that's all there will ever be right yeah it's kind of cool right kind of cool yeah well, I, I think it's very neat from a tech from a technical you, standpoint and the fact that it has happened i mean this yeah. is now i mean th- th- you're right the last week of press had well I've, w- w- one thing it's done is it's fl- it's raised the price of the bitcoin above a hundred dollars well that now. was what was interesting about the new yorker article she supposed and there's some evidence to believe that it was spaniards who had lost confidence in the euro yep. Because of the Cypriot uh, crisis and so forth that had started buying Bitcoin in great numbers and had driven the price up. And it's now, believe it or not, it's been going up a lot, $137. So you're 50 Bitcoins. (laughs) You're a rich man, Steve Gibb. You you hold on to these. But then there was the the heist of uh, half a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Now it would be worth considerably more. Well, and this is what we cover in the podcast. We cover mistakes. Right. Because because when you're dealing in, in in a world of cyber, it's there are you know you make mistakes in cyber technology in the same way that you make mistakes if you don't have a good lock on your bank vault. And now you know? we presume the mistakes are being corrected, so these these this kind of heist won't happen again, I guess. Yeah, and did the when they were it's not only, that there aren't there plenty very, of heists of cash, by the way. When, Right, right. When when there were very few exchanges of Bitcoin, then the the probability of it being a large event and one of very few exchanges was greater. Right. As we get thousands of Bitcoin exchanges, each exchange will be smaller. And so even if one completely got compromised, well, it's like, okay, well, they made a mistake. They're paying the Bitcoin price. Right. <laughs> the iron price. Uh, it's fascinating, but I leave that uh, for you to uh, investigate in a previous episode. Uh, if you go to a security now at uh, grc.com or twit.tv slash SN, uh, you, can, you can listen to our entire episode where Steve really does explain in a, in a beautiful way the ins and outs of uh, Bitcoin. And I think that that's probably the kind of be the, for, for a long time anyway, the canonical a description of Bitcoin by a third party. It's uh, episode 287, Bitcoin cryptocurrency. And then I did, I did enjoy, there's a good Wired article. There's a good, as I mentioned, medium.com has an article today and uh, the New Yorker has an article. And if you want to know more, uh, those are kind of the layperson's discussion. Yeah, I, see, I see no reason why currency would be exempted from the phenomenon of the internet and everything else that the i mean the internet is is as it's becoming more pervasive more and more of the real world is moving there i mean many people do their banking online now and so why not have a coinage it's i mean it's absolutely 
reasonable. And the good news is we didn't have several really bad ones first. It would have been it would have been bad if several currencies had not been well engineered, came out and like did you know stumbled because they were badly put together. In that podcast you cite, Leo, you can hear me being excited because during the prior week and preparing for it, I taught myself what the technology was, and I I came away saying, "Oh my goodness, they did this right! This is so <laughs> cool!" And so, we, I mean, so here, very much in the same way that there wasn't an you know an Internet One that that couldn't grow, and now we have Internet Two. You know, we the the original Internet is the same one we're using today. It has turned out to scale brilliantly because the foundation of it was so good. And, of course, we spent many podcasts in the past talking about that, explaining exactly right. why it has managed to scale the way it has. Similarly, the Bitcoin is the currency. There are, there will always be other wannabes, like, like there's already Litecoin we talked about last week. But, you know, this one has made it. And it's possible they, for there to be multiple choices or no sure i mean there's multiple sure. national the governmental are, currencies yes yeah. exactly and, and there are people who say oh i don't trust the dollar anymore i'm move, moving mine over on in in into the you know in, in into the mark or the yen or the whatever so yeah peep, and you know and, i think i should set up we have a, a dollar donation uh system from paypal i think i should set up a bitcoin donation system why not? I think that makes. I think that absolutely makes sense. The EFF had that for a while, the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, and they liked having it because they liked the concept. But they f took it down with an explanation that they felt, due to the level of their influence, they were endorsing Bitcoinage, and that made them feel a little uncomfortable. Right. My guess is, if if they were, if they still had it today. They would probably not take it down. I doubt they'll put it back up. But now with the recent decision by the Treasury Department saying, yes, this is legal, folks. Um, you know, it's one of the things that really I, I think that was the catalyst for what we've seen in yes. the last month. Yes. It also established um, kind of a standard. Some, some don't like the idea of any governmental regulation, but at least it kind of said, no, we're going to treat these as a certain kind of entity. This is the real deal. And by doing that, I think it, it did totally validate Bitcoin. Totally yeah. validated. Well, but this is not a show about Bitcoin, and I've, just, I've derailed you. Well, this is a sh this, what we've been talking about is a distributed currency. And today's podcast is about the technology of distributed databases. And it's unfortunate that the, the way of indexing the database has become the way they are known because right. the way you index them is through what's called a hash. And so the, the technology for finding the data in the cloud is called a distributed hash table. So today's topic for the podcast is distributed hash tables, but that's a lot less dry than it sounds <laughs> because this is actually, it's the fundamental solution which has been worked out for how you distribute a database in on the internet in a way that gives that is robust, uh, meaning that it's reliable and available, mm -hmm. um, and it is tolerant of mm -hmm. of pieces of the database coming and going at will. 
yet it all still works. So there's redundancy built in. It is also impervious to tampering by authorities. The original centralized database that Napster used for its it, it, its uh, audio file sharing was vulnerable because the authorities could stomp on the Napster hub it centralized and it was it was centralized BitTorrent does use this technology that we'll talk about today distributed hash tables and oh. a distributed database so it is that's your main that's good oh yeah 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 i mean it it is in use now uh we know that the the tor network which is what put us onto this topic is using it as, in, as their own directory and index because there is no single point of failure there's no one anyone can you know any authority who wants to control it can can grab in order to to shut it down and even amazon it turns out uses this technology for all of their big storage this is how amazon stores things because they need high availability high availability redundancy they're inherently multi data center cloud based but what they looked at when they looked at their needs they said you know sql the structured query language sql is really too heavy for us we don't need all of that kind of stuff you know when you think about going to amazon.com a web page is being assembled from a whole bunch of different stuff is all being pulled together onto the page. Well, it turns out that all of those little it's, the bits and pieces have tags, and somewhere there is an image, there's a blob of text, there's a this or a that that is that you find with that tag. So a page on Amazon.com is just a list of tags, and then they use a distributed hash table, distributed database in order to instantly yank that together. And, you know, we see every time we play with Amazon that it works. We're going to come back and talk about that in just a second. Steve Gibson is here at grc.com. Distributed hash tables are our uh, subject. I guess you'll understand Hadoop after this as well, which is a <laughs> distributed file system. I hope so. I've always wanted to know. Mary Jane Foley on Windows Weekly talks about it every week, and I don't I don't. But first, let's talk about the open cloud from Rackspace.com. If you are setting up uh, a database, uh, a server, uh, if you're putting code on the web, web apps, you don't want to go somewhere proprietary where it's going to be impossible to move. Your data, your apps will get stuck. Run an OpenStack cloud with Rackspace in your data center or with one of 100 OpenStack providers, and you're free. You're free! Proprietary technology is bad when it comes to this kind of uh, thing. But uh, OpenStack was co-founded by Rackspace. And I think it's fair to call them the open cloud company as a result. They run the world's largest open cloud. So you're not locked into a single provider. Uh, you have the freedom to move your apps, your code, your websites between multiple OpenStack-based clouds. Public or private, on-premises are hosted. And my gosh, nobody does better support fanatical support they call it than the 1400 cloud specialists at rackspace they can help try it today download the open cloud go to rackspace.com slash open to find out more cost you nothing build what you want an e-commerce site a mobile app a rich media site test or dev and dev development environments 
SharePoint deployments, SaaS applications, corporate websites, enterprise applications, how you want on the open stack using the open cloud. And yes, if you wanted to use a uh, a uh, Hadoop style, what do they call it? Distributed file system, distributed database, you could. Because it's open! Rackspace.com slash open. Find out more. Steve Gibson at grc.com. His Twitter handle is at s. GGRC. There's some good news for Cox, yes, Cox um, customers anyway. Yes. Um, well, what I like about this, and I didn't know about this, is that Cox, which is you know a major cable provider uh, around the country, it's, it happens to be my cable modem provider and, and others in Southern California, um, they have taken proactive responsibility for blocking the universal plug-and-play port 1900 that we've talked about. We've talked about the danger of an ISP blocking it because because it uses the UDP protocol, which DNS also uses. It might, if it was blocking it with sort of a heavy hand, it might also cause some DNS problems, but technically even those would be very transient if anyone even noticed the problem at all. Um, and if users are using Cox's DNS, which was what you get when you sign up with Cox, unless, for example, you deliberately used Open DNS or Google's DNS or you know override the normal DNS settings, then you would wouldn't even have that problem because your DNS queries would not be attempting to leave the ISP and come back where they might get blocked if they happen to have left from your port 1900 and they were trying to come back in to your port 1900 that's the action that a a block of port 1900 would would close someone found a page on cox's website that shows a complete list not of just upnp that they're blocking but everything and it's sort of nice to know that they've yeah in fact leo if you click that link in the show notes you can see that they're blocking port 25 on, on TCP, uh, and they show that the the protocol is SMTP, of course, which we know, which is, and they're saying they're blocking it to prevent SMTP relays, so that like to prevent their customers from relaying spam if they have that. That's yeah, very common. Blo- Most ISPs do that. Yes. Yeah. And they're blocking eighty, so that uh, because they don't want but that's well. Uh, yep, I know that's inbound that means- inbound web traffic. So you could send In- a web request. But and and establish a conversation, but nobody can send one to you. That means you can't run a web server. Exactly, exactly. Because when when we initiate requests, we clients clients begin issuing requests from port ten twenty four and right. upwards. Right. Um, it technically, it can go all the way up to six five five three five, but normally it wraps around about five thousand. Then for for most purposes, so they are blocking inbound port 80 to prevent people from running web services because that's prone to abuse. And it's good and for that's business. Just not, yeah, it's not part of your service agreement <laughs> right. with them. Exactly. They say you can't run a web yeah. server, so don't try. And, exactly. And they'll block it. Yeah. And then they're blocking, the fa- they're famously blocking the, the, tr- the traditional problematic ports for Microsoft, 135 through 139, and they talk about that. Um, also 445, which was the updated um, Windows printer and file sharing port for Microsoft. Um, they're also blocking the SQL port, 
um, which makes sense, 1433 and 1434, just because for some reason many things you install these days will like bring a SQL server with them because they want to use it locally, but in typical not, not planning ahead fashion, they the SQL server advertises its services on you know on that port and if you were not behind a router then that port would accept sql queries technically from anyone in the public internet which is really not what you probably had in mind so it makes sense that they would block that too basically protecting users from themselves and then finally port 1900 and that's of course the universal plug and play port what's interesting is that the person who posted this or shared this i don't remember now if it was through twitter or on grc's own news groups i asked i said i wonder how long this has been going on and they got back to me and said they asked a cox person who didn't really feel like they had a a definitive answer but they said forever so (laughs) meaning at least not just in reaction to this recent report of the millions of exposed um universal plug-and-play ports on the internet but that's something that they if, if we were to believe them preemptively recognized as a problem and took care of ahead of time so i say bravo to them and very nice that they're that they're publishing that i don't know what other isps do or don't but it's nice that cox is one thing i do know that an isp is doing that i wish were not the case oh. is the comcast oh, my isp <laughs> Uh, has recently been found to be injecting, not, not only injecting JavaScript into the pages that people browse to. That is, there. so you go to any website through Comcast as your ISP, and when the when the page at Google or MSN or you know anything. You know, Facebook is returned to you. Comcast is using deep packet inspection technology to inject their own JavaScript into the page from the remote site. And, I mean, that's annoying sort of just from a purist standpoint. But moreover, it's badly written JavaScript. So, for example... One of the problems that JavaScript has is it's trying to it, it, it's still going through growing pains. We're we're seeing uh, we're we're at ECMA uh, script, which is like the formal name of JavaScript. We're we're aiming toward version six, and they're adding features to mature the language. But one of the original concepts was oh anybody can write JavaScript. Well, apparently anyone did. Um, this is very poorly written and for example unless you take extreme measures all the variables in javascript are global so that when you have so you have to be very careful when you are mixing canned javascript that they there isn't a, a collision of variable names so if there is so annoying I know. Then they then then those various scripts that in, that intended for these variables to be private to themselves end up sharing the value, so they're stomping all over each other. Well, this JavaScript does that. It it has not been written so that it uses containment. There there's a technology called closure that existing JavaScript can use, which 
is so complicated that it's got its own book. There's a book that O'Reilly produces on JavaScript closures. And, you know, it's on my, when I really have extra time <laughs> to, to get to it. I've used closures for my own code because I, I want to be careful about not doing this. There were no closures used here. So any variable names in the script that you have no control over, that the site you're visiting has no knowledge is being added to its pages it's sending to you is potentially stomping all over the variables that that they created. And it's doing other annoying things. The idea is that this is Comcast's means of informing you that when you've reached 90% of their bandwidth allocation for you for the month. So as you're going along, surfing the web, doing your stuff, at some point, hopefully very near the end of the month, you'll up will come a pop-up on your browser from Comcast saying, notice you are, you have exceeded 90% of your monthly bandwidth allocation. All so that's this, the purpose of this? Yes. But it doesn't happen until you've reached that or is it happening to everybody? No. Well, uh, oh, okay. Apparently it is not being injected until they need to give you the notice. Um, they're doing. They're using old code. They're using code they took from other sites oh, whose licenses God. they're apparently violating. Some moron did this. Yes, oh. this was really a probably hack. a contractor. Oh, I can do that for you. No problem. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Well, I can set that up. <laughs> and then, and then, while the page is there, even after you close the dialog, there are Ajax is a technology in in HTML5 and beyond that allows the browser to initiate queries um, out to the hosting site. Um, but, um, and, and, and you're prevented, it, Ajax is prevented from sending queries anywhere else for security's sake. You wouldn't want your browser to, you know, be off, you know, doing other things to other sites. So they've got code in there such that every page with this script, starts making queries back to the host every five seconds. So if you're someone like me who has lots of pages open, since, you know, if Comcast were my ISP, they're not, but were they, then every one of those pages would have had the same script redundantly loaded into it, and they would all be generating outbound queries every five seconds. So it's just bad. Stupid, 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 stupid. It stupid. really is bad. Gosh yeah. darn them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <sighs> what they should do is, uh, is if this is what they want to do, they ought to, at the beginning of a session where your bandwidth is exceeded, just bring up an intercept page. You know, we're all used to that when we go to Starbucks or any, you know, standard, like, you know, a, an airport where they say they your, your, inter, your normal use is intercepted by a page that says, you know, agree to our terms of service if you want to use our free bandwidth and disclaimers and all that, yada, yada. And so they go, okay, yeah, that that's all they would have to do. Just say, wait, stop. You're at 90%, want to let you know, um, click here for more information, <laughs> click here to lift the ban, whatever, and then use the internet in an unmolested fashion. This is a case, a further case for um, encryption, HTTP, because that they cannot intercept. 
So, you know, so this is another reason why the whole notion of us, the net moving to SSL slash TLS all the time is a good thing. It prevents our ISP from monitoring what we're doing, seeing what's, what's going on, and from modifying the pages that we receive on the fly. Definitely an annoying thing. We've, we've seen that kind of stuff before with, like, um, changing, uh, you know, f- uh, 404s into advertising and stuff like that. But this is uh, yep. this is really terrible. Okay, now, you got to go to a page, Leo, that uh, that bit.ly link that I show. Mm-hmm, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just say it to you. Uh, and yeah, you can click go ahead. And, 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 the, the, okay, now you can say it. <laughs> I mean, you can say it out I, loud if you want. <laughs> yes, and I will. Um it is. Um, I tweeted we don't want it to bring down the site before I before, get to it. Yeah. But for everyone who's interested, I created a shortcut to an otherwise very long URL, bit.ly slash Java Age, all lowercase, J-A-V-A-A-G-E. Now, Leo, the right way to look at this is because it's a little confusing at first, is at 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock is the is sort of the start and the end of this pie chart. Yeah. And so as we go clockwise from the dark side to the lighter side of of the colors, we're moving back in history. This is a it's this a is pie a chart, chart of versions of uh, Java that was created by WebSense. Currently in use. Yeah. That's the key. And the biggest pie slice is October 2009 (laughs) with 9% compared to 5% of the current version and uh, 8.5% for uh, the original Java 1.0. Now, how many, you know, know, there are pages tracking the days since the latest exploit. Everyone, I mean, one of the things we spend an inordinate amount of time on, because unfortunately it's important, is... The, the incredible insecurity of Java. And, and they are constantly producing emergency releases in order to fix the latest problem. What this says is this is a, this is a population study based on the, the, the current version loaded into the browsers on the Internet. So these are the, these are the versions of Java that is accessible for exploitation. And looking at this chart, again, bit.ly slash Java age, um, you have to just despair because it says that this stuff is not being updated. I mean, this is where the exploits are coming from today more than anywhere else. Back, you know, we're on episode, what, 398? Um of security now. Back in the 100s, we were talking about email spam. You know, don't click on the links in email. And while that's certainly still true, the, this is all moved to the net and to these vulnerable plugins, Java, Flash, and and Acrobat or Adobe Reader. And so here we're seeing the truth of the fact that old versions never die and they absolutely should. Now, the problem is that only the new versions auto-update. So if you have an old version, it never had auto-update technology. I mean, even though arguably two years ago, as you said, Leo, the, the October 09 
what? No, that's more than two years ago. That's four years ago. But, you know, we've had Windows update and automatic updates and, and, you know, updates. I mean, and look how many prior versions of Java there were before that. You know, that's version 1.6.16. They started at 1.0. There were already tons of major and minor updates, yet no automatic update facility. They were in denial that like, oh, this will be the last bug. No, we're not, we found the last bug. This is, you know, this is this is four years ago. Oh, no, this, this was the last bug. We don't have to update this ever again. Uh-huh. So the problem is this, these Javas will never change. I mean, unless something somehow went through and swept them. Now, I wonder how they're being invoked because certainly Firefox and Chrome are taking responsibility. I guess... IE is taking responsibility for Flash now, but I don't think it does anything to warn you about antique Java clones, I mean, uh, Java versions um, in IE. And so, so, um, so my feeling is, since Java itself cannot, it will, is not taking responsibility for keeping itself current back be before that technology was added, it's up to the hosts of the Java plugin to do so. And we really need all browsers to to be proactive about this and just stop allowing these non-current versions to function. It's it's a trivial thing for them to do, to check the release version of the Java plugin, which is trying to run in them and say, oh, wait a minute. And we know that Firefox does that. So, And I'm pretty sure that Chrome must be doing that too because they've been so proactive. And as a consequence, at the moment... Vulnerable version, the most recent release is 1.7.15. And we already know, and, 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 the, and the, the similar release on the version 1.6 track is 1.6.41. 93.77%, almost 94% of all browsers today are vulnerable to that exploit and all the previous ones. So, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, really, 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 you want to you want to stay away from this. Just, you know, be very careful of Java. Now, I have created a Bitcoin QR code that I will now flash on the screen. If anybody is so hardcore that they want to donate Bitcoin to Twit, this, this will go to our Twit account. I think that makes a lot of sense, Leo. Uh, we'll put it on the website. I, you know, I'll be very curious uh, as to... Uh, you know how much it'd be, it'd be a great survey just to yeah. just to receive yeah. yeah and you know even if we get a, a couple of coins that's that's some money isn't it well but remember they can send you point zero 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 in this qr code you know you can when you set it up specify i'd like one bitcoin i didn't say donate whatever fraction thereof send us a bit penny or whatever the hell i think we're gonna see hoarding going on because i'm sure not doing anything with my fifty. i ain't spending any I'm sitting on mine. Yeah, yeah. I ain't spending any. So uh, if you have Bitcoin on your uh, on your smartphone, you can actually use this to uh, to send uh, Bitcoin. I'm told. I have no idea. You know, I couldn't find. I had created a Bitcoin in 2010. Somebody emailed us, emailed me, and said, "Hey, if you, uh, I'd like to give you a Bitcoin. I wish I'd taken it now. Uh, mm -hmm. If you have a Bitcoin uh, email address, I said, what's Bitcoin?" So uh, I got I, I set up a Bitcoin. Uh, I was even doing some mining. I wasn't as lucky as you. 
Now it's not even worth doing it, right? You'd have to set up no. such a high-end machine. Um, but uh, I don't. I couldn't find that old address. Now the key on this, right, is to back it up because that's your wallet and that's it. If you if you yes. if this hard drive crashed and I had a bunch of Bitcoin in it, I'm in deep doo doo. Yes. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> it's purely bits. It's, it's just purely bits. electronic. Okay, so uh, as soon as any I have any coin uh, coin in my wallet, I guess I should back up the number, or whatever this is. I don't even know. Yes, what this when, is. when we lose our checkbook, it's okay because the bank is actually yeah, they, still they, holding they, our they, money. No, there ain't no bank. Not the case. No here. bank yeah. here. Sorry. So, so not. So this is good. Yeah. So something disturbing. I'm gonna get a yabba dabba do. <laughs> so every time a Bitcoin is d donated, a yabba dabba do. Oh, so I'll send you my wave file. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So, uh, something disturbing is going on with Apache. Uh oh. Um. It was first seen last summer, August of 2012, um, and it's becoming prevalent and now worrisome. Uh, there have been several security researchers who have been following this, and, for example, there was an infection of the L.A. Times, which we briefly mentioned last month, See, uh, or I'm sorry, February. Uh, Seagate's uh, media site, media.seagate.com, got infected last month in March. Um, the the symptom is that iframes, which are i for inline inline frames, are being in conditionally injected into the pages being served by these infected Apache servers. Every server that has been found that's been infected is running version of Apache, version 2.2.2 or later. So that's one common factor. Um, the disturbing thing is no one knows how they are being, how these Apache servers are being infected, but more than 2,000 servers have been. And those 2,000 servers are hosting, because many of them are hosting multiple sites, you know, virtual sites, they are hosting more than 20,000 websites. So 20,000 websites hosted by 2,000 web servers, and these numbers, of course, are rough, and it's difficult to find these. I'll explain why in a second, are infected. And what's, what's making this so difficult for investigators is what has been found in infected servers is a malicious Apache module. So one module, Apache is inherently module in the HTTP config file, you, you have a, a whole batch of load module statements, which when the, when the Apache service starts up, it reads the file to figure out what it's supposed to be doing, how it's supposed to be acting as a server, and it sucks in all of these different modules, you know, PHP and, and, you know, and so forth, for offering the services that it needs. One of these modules 
is malicious on these servers. And it's in the so-called Apache pipeline, which is the term they use for the request processing. The idea being that a module in the request pipeline is able to do anything it wants with every request made to the server. So, and it has all the request headers that it's able to see. So what the developers of this module have done is they have, they have given it knowledge to thwart analysis. It will never inject the malicious iframe into the IP of any known security researcher. <laughs> so security researchers can't scan the net. They can't go to suspected sites. When they go there, the site looks fine. Somebody else goes there from a different IP, and it's not fine. But way more than that. They look at the user agent, which, remember, in the request headers is the, the claim that the browser makes about its, its heritage. You know, um, is it Safari? Is it Firefox? Is it IE? And so forth. Um, so they're only selecting, currently, they're only targeting specific operating systems because one of the things in the user agent is typically this is the browser I am and this is the OS I'm running on. They're only targeting Windows for these particular attacks. Um, now, again, the, the, the infected server could be running and is typically running on, on Linux sites or on, on Linux OS hosting Apache, which is then hosting either one to hundreds of websites. But, for example, they blacklist search engine spiders. So the search engines won't pick up the iframe. Again, that's a, that, as we've talked about before, that's been a very clever means of finding problems. Remember, for example, that um, webcams were being indexed. So you could just do a search and find all the webcams because they all had a particular user agent in their, in their reply. And so anyone who was spidering the net and collecting user agent strings could say, oh, here's all the webcams that you can log on to remotely without a, without a password. But nope, these guys don't do that. Um, they, they deliberately don't inject this iframe for search engines. They also use cookies to manage return visitors. And they look at their referrer header. Remember, the referrer is the, tells the, tells a website where this query came from, where the user was when they clicked on something. And so, for example, if you received the URL of a, sus, of a suspect site, if you were a, if you were a researcher, and, and say that you were using different IPs because, you know, you, on, on the theory that maybe it's IP sensitive, which it is, but so you were going to go to a different IP so that that wouldn't catch it. And you enter the URL into the address bar. Well, there's no referrer, so it'll be blank. And this thing is smart enough not to inject. It only injects if it knows that the link that the, on a given search engine is valid for this site. And that means you're, you're probably clicking the link although it's spoofable, but still it's another level of filter. So you can see that 
what we have, and this is why this has been sort of pernicious and persistent and slowly growing over time. What it does, the iframe refers people's browsers to additional malicious content. So that they're on otherwise valid sites. So so other sites are infected with the actual malware that your brow that's going to infect your browser. This whole system I've been talking about is the way of getting you essentially to visit a site you're not really visiting. So if a if a bad site were infected, it's like okay, if people go there, they'll get infected. But if they don't go there, they won't. Instead, other good sites, 20,000 of them, are now injecting an iframe which induces your browser to go to the bad site to get itself infected. And so this is sort of a, a delivery, a sort of a second-order delivery system for that. One of the things that's also been found on these, on these compromised Apache servers is that the SSH daemon, the, the secure shell service, has been compromised. A backdoor has been installed in every one of these machines that has been seen that allows remote attackers to, to access the machine bypassing the regular authentication. Thus, that's why you would want a, a compromised secure shell so that you don't need to log on with real username and, and password um, and whatever other credentials. But it does much more than that. It captures any valid credentials which are used to log on and sends them off to a repository somewhere so that the attackers, having once compromised this machine, then get the valid credentials. And what's often the case is that the same credentials are used on many different systems by, by common admins. So this gives them a dictionary of username and passwords to try elsewhere to get in. And so, so this thing tends to spread. Um, so, they're, so they're monitoring anyone's login, that is admin login, and, and if anyone uses that login somewhere else, oh, and I guess the other thing that happens is it's often the case that someone will log into the system and then we'll secure shell from there to another system. And that they capture as well. So they, they're able to monitor anyone using a compromised system to access and administer another not yet compromised system in the process getting access to it, which is the way, again, the way this tends to spread. So it is, it is daunting it's it's known to be going on with Apache systems. There are um, a couple. There are a couple researchers who have been tracking it. Um, there's a great blog called unmaskparasites.com, um, and Dennis, who's the who's the um, uh, who runs that site uh, at Unmask Parasites, has a blog, and and he wrote. Of this, he said, while this hack is not new, I could not find reliable information about how hackers break into servers and get root access. 
The malicious modules are owned by root and httpd.conf files can only be modified by root. So that tells him for sure that somehow someone's getting root on these servers. He says, at this point, I can say that it doesn't look like a security issue of some control panel. Remember, we've seen that in the past. He said, the two infected sites I worked with had different control panels, virtual um, min on one and C panel on another. He says, the malicious module doesn't come from Linux repositories, so that's not how it's getting into these machines. He said, so someone somehow breaks into servers with root permissions, which is quite alarming. One of the servers had only one user, it was a dedicated server, used strong passwords, didn't allow remote root logins, used custom ports, and failed to ban to prevent brute force attack. Nonetheless, it was hacked within one month, and its administrator could not find signs of the intrusion in log files, only legitimate logins. And he says, of course, root access gives you the ability to remove most possible traces. So we'll keep our eye on this. Um, people running Apache version 2.2.2 and older may want to check out unmaskparasites.com. Um, there's much more there that I, that's more specific to administering the site. He gives a lot of scripts and specific things you can do to verify that the modules your system is currently using have not been modified and that no additional unknown ones have been uh, added. And it would certainly seem to be something worth doing because at this point, it looks like there is an unknown means for root access, somehow gaining root access to servers. And the people who are taking advantage of this are being so careful not to let this get found because they recognize this is the golden goose for them and they don't want it to get they don't want it to to get loose and be closed. So it looks like someone's taking very careful advantage of a currently unknown means of compromising Linux servers running this version of Apache. We don't know if it's through Linux or through Apache and and through where, but uh we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, it was. That's how our uh, servers got hacked. Was uh, not through Drupal, but through modules, older modules that had been installed on mm -hmm. top of the Drupal. It's hard to keep track. You had all these modules doing things, and uh, so you don't just have to watch, you know, your uh, main co code base, but <laughs> you know all these little modules that are in there. Yeah, have you looked at, at how quickly any apps in iOS get? old right, right. it's ridiculous yeah. i mean I'm, i feel they're updated I'm being all the punished. time yeah i'm being punished now for having played with so many of them it's like oh you've got 56 updates hey i was yeah. uh, running the uh, bitcoin qt software which is kind of the default That's the one yeah yep. kind of basic software and i was going into the settings and i noticed this map port using upnp and that's checked by default <laughs> now it seems to be connecting so maybe you don't have to maybe it doesn't need a special port but uh I thought that was kind of interesting. Anything that is, wants to be part of a network, and Bitcoin needs to communicate with many other nodes in order to update itself, to get to bring itself current with the current um, uh, hash history. And then, you know, it's the idea is that when it succeeds in 
minting a coin, it sends that news out and it requires that other nodes confirm that it found the hash. And so it's that communal agreement that you know, runs the right. whole system. So right. you cannot be a, a Bitcoin miner on and an island. And offline, yeah, yeah. You've got, you've got to be part of the network. And and you're also, you know, when someone says, hey, I got one, it's like, oh, crap, okay, let, you know, let me see. And, you know. <laughs> now, now, and now what do I do, right? Yeah. Uh, but we did get, apparently, somebody in the uh, chat room has given us, uh, at least I haven't received it yet. <laughs> Our first Bitcoin has appeared, uh, apparently, in the wallet. So, <laughs> And that sounds like the right file. <laughs> very, very familiar to me. Uh, so there you go. Apparently, uh, I don't need UPnP unless I'm getting incoming connections. I don't know what that means. But I'm, I'm making outbound connections, obviously, to the Bitcoin servers. Good. So good. that's all, all well and good. And, and I've encrypted my wallet, and I'm backing it up. I wish it said where the wallet was stored, at least on the Mac. That's not immediately obvious. I'll have to dig around because I'd like to put the wallet on a Dropbox and then I wouldn't have to back it up, right? As long as it's encrypted, having it on a Dropbox would mean it's on a bunch of machines. It'd be pretty safe that way. Yes, and in fact, I know that on Windows, it's it's under app data, uh, you know, slash Bitcoin, slash, and then it's like slash wallet. And it's a little, it's a collection of files. that Can I double click? It'd be nice if I could double click the wallet and have start the Bitcoin that way. And then that way I could start it from any location. I'll have to, I'll play around with it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's nice, isn't it? It's, it's I'm, real. I'm already 50, it's what real. is it? No, a hundred, more than a hundred dollars richer. Of course, I can't do no anything kidding. with it. Wow. <laughs> well, somebody gave me nice. a Bitcoin. That's a hundred. Nice. Uh, what is it? One hundred thirteen bucks. Nice. Very generous. I'll give you a podcast instead. <laughs> you have fifty bitcoins. You could. You could. You could. <laughs> we are going to put the. Uh, we are going to put the uh, Bitcoin address, which is just a long crypto number, uh, yep. and the QR code to make it easier for you. So you don't have to enter it by hand um, on our uh, on our website if you want to donate bitcoins. Thank you. And I thank you to now I I forgot his name. It's a Dark Haven or something like that for our first Bitcoin. Nice. Yeah. So I have an announcement. Uh oh. Are you getting married? No. Oh, having a baby? Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who's laughing in the background? <laughs> uh somebody who probably is gonna have a baby. Maybe. That's our it's our uh, newlyweds in the uh, room from Wisconsin. So GRC is announcing today a new service. Wow, you are prolific yeah. all of a sudden. I've, I've been cranking away, baby. Um, I referred to this once, and it is now up and public. GRC.com slash fingerprints. Um, it's under the main menu, under services, because yeah. it's a new service from GRC. Um, this is the thing that I talked about a few months ago. It took me and literally until yesterday to get it all nailed down, working perfectly. This allows people to detect when somebody is intercepting their SSL, their TLS, their HTTPS connections. Um, and I'm really proud of it. It will be here forever. Of course, it's free, like everything here at GRC. Um, uh, and I think it will end up probably over time becoming popular. It's The idea is that if you are in a corporation that is secretly decrypting your SSL traffic and 
you're connecting to the corporate server and then it's decrypting your traffic and then inspecting it, filtering it, logging it, whatever. And then it's it's connecting to the secure service that you think you're connecting to. It's spoofing the certificate that you receive. Well, it it is impossible, thank goodness, to perfectly spoof a certificate from a remote server because the certificate contains, as we know, the remote server's public key. And the public key matches the private key, and the private key is secret. So nobody knows, for example, Google's private key. They're, believe me, they're not letting anybody find that out because that would be the end of the world. So, so that means that the, the authentic certificate from Google contains the public key, which we use for encrypting data to Google. But a certificate which is spoofing Google, pretending to be Google, has to be offering us a public key that it says is from Google. But it can't be the same public key as Google's because they, we don't know, because the, the person spoofing doesn't know Google's private key. So that means that it is impossible for a certificate to have the same hash. And so what all browsers allow you to do is to view the details of the certificate you have from a site. For example, if you're if you're looking at, at grc.com, that page, grc.com slash fingerprints, will only allow itself to be displayed over secure connection. And so you can always right-click on it and do the view certificate. And all browsers, and on that page I, sh I give instructions for all the different popular browsers, you know, step-by-step, step, here's where you can find the data, although it, the, the, the browsers don't hide it. Normally it's right there, you know, and it says thumbprint or fingerprint. And it's a, it's a series of 20 hex um, characters, which is the, it's the hash that the browser just made of the certificate. The certificate contains other internal hashes for their own purposes, but this is the hash of the certificate that the browser calculated to say this is the fingerprint of the certificate. No one's ever really done anything with this before until now. So the idea is GRC will, will make a connection for you. I display a, a, a set of 11 different server certificates, just sort of, you know, the popular ones, Twitter and, and Facebook and WordPress and, and Tumblr and so forth, just sort of a, a, as a reference. But so the idea is that GRC servers are right on the internet backbone. Level three is a tier one provider. Nobody is in, is filtering my connection. So I make the, I create the connections and get the, the security certificates from those servers, or you can also enter your own custom one, whatever particular one you may care about, like your bank. And so I will show you the authentic fingerprint of the real certificate. And then you simply compare it with the one your browser shows you for the same site. And if they're the same, you absolutely know, absolutely, that there is no interception going on. And if they're different, 
then you need to be careful and and maybe worry a little bit because if you didn't know this was happening, then it raises some flags. So I expect this to be a, a long-running uh, and very useful service. Anyone anywhere can instantly check the get from me the uh, using this page the authentic fingerprint of any site they wish and then compare it easily with the fingerprint that their browser shows them for the same site. And if there's been a man-in-the-middle attack, whether malicious or corporate or educational or your church or, you know, what, whatever organization, this is happening more and more because, as we've talked about, more and more sites are using SSL all the time for the sake of privacy and security. But that's making people uncomfortable. That is people who want to monitor and filter your traffic. Um, there's even a, a reference that gives you a sense for this on that page. I found a blog posting a couple of months ago from one of the companies that is doing this kind of offering this service as an appliance where they say that they've just they've just now removed the LGBT filtering checkbox from their user interface um, as a in reaction to people complaining, apparently, that they were explicitly offering LGBT filtering and tracking of <laughs> people using their service no i'm not kidding that's, it's bad leo that's, uh, yeah. yeah and uh, also a dialogue there from uh from the windows i'm sorry the microsoft product which is a uh a forefront threat gateway they call it which makes it very clear that they're uh, inspecting as they call it, they're inspecting your https oh, traffic oh my god yeah, Little inspection. So, enabling inspection may have legal implications. You should verify if using this protection is in compliance with your corporate policy. Good yeah. lord! <laughs> Jeez. So we've needed a way to quickly check to see if this is happening to us, and GRC offers that now. So, I'm uh, I'm really excellent. glad I did That's that. Really and, and this this came from the mailbag, by the way. I referred to this way back when somebody wrote. One of our listeners said, "Hey, Steve." Is this possible? And it's like, oh, that's a good idea. I yeah, like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's taken me quite a while, but uh, it's done. So and it's there, and always will be. Um, also, just a little update: uh, the the second most recent service offered was the addition of the universal plug and play probe to Shields Up. And when I looked this morning, we were at four thousand sixty routers. Oh identified oh. so continues wow. it continues creeping up as more and more people find it 4061 so. now ah good <laughs> one more not mine yeah, yeah. <laughs> one more um also some news we have a new firefox when i saw this yesterday i went over and did uh under help and then about and that kind of kicks it into action it says oh you want to know about version and i was on 19.0.2 and asking it about itself, started it downloading a 10.3 megabyte replacement, uh, which it then updated. Now I'm on version 20. Um, we have a couple new things that people will care about and a lot of little other things. Um, we have um, something new for Firefox, which is convenient, is per window private browsing. So under the file menu, there's the new tab to give you, you know, obviously you want to open another tab, there's new window, and then there's new private window. 
So you are out and you are now able to to just let, leave your existing session up and running. You don't have to like shut down and restart to go to, to, for the whole the whole browser to go into privacy mode. And and that anything you do in that window is not recorded. And there's a cute little purple uh, Mardi Gras mask <laughs> that appears in the upper right hand corner of the of the window when that's the one that you're in just to say yep you're in you know we're we're protecting you nothing gets written to the disc no cookies saved no history saved and and so forth so that's convenient there's also they've updated the download manager so that's got a better user interface a better experience as they say Um, and they have furthered their technology to prevent plugins from being able to hang the browser I haven't had that happen for me in Firefox for quite a while. It used to happen. It was annoying. Um, but now plugins can be expressly individually closed without needing to recycle the entire browser. Then there's the regular security fixes, performance improvements. Um, they're, they've added some more things to ECMA script 6. Um, so they're moving that their support for that forward. Uh, there's a new JavaScript profiler for people who want to improve performance. <laughs> and I got a kick out of this. They're, they're, they've added a new HTML5 feature, Get User Media is the name. And it implements web access to the user's microphone and camera. Oh, wow. What could go wrong with that? <laughs> a lot of flash. <laughs> Interesting. Well, but, you know, that's probably... Uh... Maybe Re- moving, WebRTC or something like that. Uh, yes, yeah. they're yes they're moving toward being able to host you know real time you know like chat. Right. You can and, do that with WebRTC right now through Google. So yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, yeah. So that'll be a good thing. I mean, again, I'm bullish as I mentioned when I was talking last week about the assem.js uh, work that they're doing that that allows them to get very high performance JavaScript without breaking compatibility. I mean, I'm bullish about the browser as the future. This yes. is. This is the cloud access platform. So these are all good things they're doing. And And I have to say, when it's open source, I have a little more confidence than when it's closed source written by Adobe. You know, at least somebody's looking at that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and can fix it quickly. And can fix it, exactly. Um, Oh, and when I was, uh, after upgrading, I saw a notification that I hadn't, maybe I'd seen it before, but I hadn't mentioned it. And that is along the bottom, it said, Firefox automatically sends some data to Mozilla so that we can improve your experience. And then over on the far right was a button says, choose what I share. And so I thought, okay, let's see what that is. I clicked that. And all that did was open up the standard options dialog under the advanced category and the data choices tab. So anybody can see that anytime you want by going to the option, you know, uh, the, the options dialog in Firefox, advanced category, data choices tab. And there are two things there. There's telemetry, which was not checked, which says, which I respect. I'm glad, glad they didn't. It says shares performance, usage, hardware, and customization data about your browser with Mozilla to help us make Firefox better. And then, and I turned it on because it's like, yeah, you know, I want them to know I'm running with 85 tabs so they can right. think, oh. There's somebody people. doing that. <laughs> we got we got to we handle have, these people. We got an outlier here. <laughs> we got to make that strollable. Um, and then the second one was Crash Reporter, which was turned on by default, where Firefox submits crash reports to help Mozilla make your browser more stable and secure. And that was on, and I left it on. So those things are there. 
our prolific animator has continued animating old episodes, old, old but not you know not dusty, still useful. They're all uh, good still. This is yeah. This I is mean, an archive of brilliance. Yeah. So ask mrwizard.com or ask mrwizard.com slash security now. Uh, Bob Bozen is running that show over there, and he's added episode 11, that is Security Now episode 11, on bad Wi-Fi security, and that's in five animated video segments. Episode 13, WPA, Wi-Fi security done right, in two video segments. And episode 14, VPN theory, and he's only got the first of several segments complete so far. But he's he's moving ahead. That's awesome. Doing that's great. animated video to supplement the podcast audio. Wonderful. So, yeah. Wonderful. I think that's really great. And I wanted to just check back in. There's been a lot of activity on Mark Thompson and companies. I was calling it schmush. Yes, and they I corrected us. Smoosh. smoosh. It's a smoosh box. Yes. I didn't want to be smooching it, so I guess smush. It's a smoosh but box. Smoosh, smoosh box. Um, By the way, I ordered one, you know. Yes, and yes. Mark saw and was pleased. Um, and I don't think he'd heard the podcast at that point, but he, he has since. In fact, he sent out a notice to Ooh, all they're Kickstarter. They're so close. 15 days. They're just 3,500 away from their goal. Yeah, so they got 16 for something, right? Yeah, 16446 yeah. out of 20,000 they want to raise. So we're getting closer yeah, and, to the and smoosh frankly, box. I don't think. This is not a do or die thing. It's not like they're not going to make it if they don't. No, get as don't many say as that. Okay, I don't anyway. say that. All the uh, all the smoosh kit early backers are gone now. There's still a, 35 of the 250 dollar later backers available. And well, the and now that's significant because yeah. I got some feedback from our listeners. Several people sent me links to services, and and so it's worth mentioning there are definitely services. There's actually many. Oh yeah, that we'll allow you to yes, the yeah. line allow you to sign up. But what happened is Mark and he, for his purposes were using a service that sold the phone numbers, right? And so Mark said, "Okay, uh, clearly right. this doesn't work." Yeah, you want to run your own service, and that's the point. Is yes, and I've looked at pricing, and they, of course, it's like you know, it's like. For a while, I, I thought, oh, look, I could put my website, give it to Amazon. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. When you start doing the math, it's not feasible right. because they want to make money. And, of course, these services want to make money. They're having to pay something to the, to, you know, on the back end, so they're marking it up. Now, one person sent me um, a link to hardware that their company uses. Multitech has something hmm. called the SF. Uh, Sam Fox hyphen 100G. And it is essentially what this box does. The, so Multitech has it called the SF100G. I thought, oh, let's go look. So Beach Audio has it for $388.46. Gemini Computers at 374 PLC Center for four fifty one. I don't think they're going to sell many of those at that price. And eBay sold one just two months ago, middle of February on the nineteenth, for three hundred and ninety dollars. So there does exist something that looks like this. I have no idea in detail how it compares to what what Mark and his group are putting together, but we're getting it for 
for more than a hundred dollars less than the best price here when we when we get it for for two hundred fifty bucks. So um, I'm glad these guys have done something, and I I think it'll be a long term win for them. And um, I'm excited to play with this thing. That's really cool. Yeah, I am too. What we're gonna just so people understand what we're what I'm planning on doing, and I've already talked to my web team, and they seem to think hey. it's doable. Is set up a checklist when, just like you would subscribe to a newsletter, but you could subscribe to text messages. Uh, when Leo is in the building, <laughs> the <laughs> podcast could be beginning any minute now. The podcast hey, actually I, I, began. I need, I need that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the podcast is done and the podcast is produced and on available for download, that nice. kind of thing. I and love the uh, idea of getting of getting texted when when it has been posted online. Yeah. That's great. So I'm trying yeah. to think now that there are 25 shows. There's probably two texts per show you know started recording and uh has uh, available for download and maybe one more on my shows where i'm actually the pre-show has begun so let's say three that's 75 different possibilities <laughs> it's already way out of control yeah so it's 25 lines and three columns yeah that's what well we'll put it on each individual page so if you go to twit.tv slash sn there'll be a checkbox that says send me a text now we will i promise we will not harvest the phone numbers. I don't want your cell phone number. I don't want just thinking cell phone number. So we, and because we're doing it ourselves, we can make that promise. Nobody's going to see that number, um, except T-Mobile. I guess you have to use them as a service. And then um, uh, uh, I guess we. I mean, if if a thousand, two thousand. I mean, I don't know how many we might be sending out. What if twenty thousand people say we want to know when security now is out? We'll be sending twenty thousand text messages. That's a flat rate, twenty five bucks a month with T Mobile. So, I think it's cool. I think it's very cool. Yeah. Yes. And we might have some emergency messages that you, you know, my, when my salad has disappeared, things like that, that people. Could or if get. you have a power failure at, you know, well, there you go. And, but then the smoosh box will also be dead. <laughs> so that's not going. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll figure it. Put it, it out. on a UPS. Put it on a yeah, UPS. We'll take some but votes. Cool. For... See, that's the other cool thing is that if you use a service. And your network connectivity goes down, you're screwed. Right. Not if you use a smoosh box. Right. Because it doesn't use a third-party outside provider. It is its own its own uh, SMS texting Actually, provider. we put that on a UPS, and unless T-Mobile's towers are down, and they're just right out the side of the door here, uh, we might be, even with a power outage, able to uh, send a text out. Yeah. Yeah. We're still here. Does It, it doesn't receive texts in any way. Yes, bi-directional. Yeah, so you can do all kinds of things. You can have contests. You can have special Ooh. events. You, you can have text this Ooh. code to this. Yes, yes. Ooh, that's yeah. intriguing. I'm going to use it to turn on my air conditioning. <laughs> oh, I can't wait till Smooshbox. <laughs> well, I hope that it looks like they might make it. They're, they're only halfway through, and they're almost all the way uh, uh, funded. So that's good. Yeah, they just need all we need to do is spread the word because right. we want people who could use this to know about it. That's right. the you know th that's the thing that's annoying about Kickstarter is when you come you show up too late. It's like oh can't you know I wish I knew about this. You know it's funny. There's a they're painting a beautiful mural on the side of the building over here, and they had a Kickstarter project to raise the money for it. I didn't even know about it. You know Petaluma's <laughs> largest mural. Here we are across the street. Didn't even know about it. I would have publicized it. Didn't even know about it. Yeah. yeah. I did uh, found a really fun, uh, just this completely off topic, but Think Geek on uh, Monday, 
a special day for us all. Oh yes. Finally, we're finally it's not Monday, so we can actually believe Thank something God. that, that I, we the see. The worst yeah. day on the internet. I hate <laughs> April Fools. I know. Hate it. <laughs> so they were offering something so cool: a forty-nine dollar uh, Play-Doh three D printer. <laughs> Well, I used to have one of those when I was a kid. You push the lever and it extrudes the Play-Doh. Well, this thing, and and that's, I'm sure, was the inspiration. I tweeted the link to it. If you look in my Twitter stream, you go to, uh, what is it, Uh, bit.ly slash sggrc, and that will find the link that I posted. I shared it on Monday because it was so well done. I mean, it showed you the machine takes two D cells, or maybe it was C cells. It's got a little crank, and it shows you like it's printing a droid. Uh, so it's a three D printer, absolutely convincing looking. That, uh, <laughs> That's so cute. And it runs. Oh, and you hook it to an iPad. So your iPad is your, and there's free, free download software. By the from way, your iPad, Steve, this is almost certainly an April Fool's joke. No, Leo. No, I, I got one on order. Really? Yeah, it's cl- actually click from the Play-Doh it. folks. No, this click is to a to- it. no, it's a joke. Click the buy it button. Tell tell me you want one because don't tell me you don't. I want one. Continue on, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I also want the uh, oh look at this bare paint conductive paint kits. That's cool. The moving hand muscle wire uh, moving hand kit. The uh, auto bacon T-shirt. There's so many great things on here. Yeah, they're yeah. good guys. Thank you. Love them. So because it had a science fiction basis. Yes. I went with Jenny on Friday to see the host. Uh, is this a movie? Yeah. Okay. Well, kind of. Yeah. It was so bad, Leo. Yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. Oh, terrible, huh? I've never mm-hmm. put a review up on IMDb until now. <laughs> that uh, bad. It was that bad. And, uh, yeah. So, and, and I'm just warning our listeners, I care about you all. Don't go see um, it, huh? Do not, do not see Here's it. Here's one go, review that says it wasn't awful. <laughs> keep reading. Scroll down wow, a little bit longer. this movie is unimaginably awful. Save your money. Steve Gibson from the United States writes. <laughs> you, you, it was that bad. Did you walk out? No. Jenny kept offering that we could walk out. I was a little uncomfortable feeling that maybe if other people were actually enjoying it, they would think, well, why don't those two just leave? Because we were groaning <laughs> so, so much. Oh, gosh. It was just, I mean, the special effects were okay, but the screen, the, the director wrote the screen, did the screenwriting, which yeah. is never a good idea. And so it's from you know, Stephanie Meyer, the author of the Twilight Saga. Yeah, choose to believe, yeah. choose to fight, choose to love. Yeah, could could yeah. I, I think that was you know yeah. So anyway, yeah. don't go. Mm-hmm. Don't oh, go. and Leo, boy, have we got stuff coming. We're going to have a wonderful summer, and I have a guilty pleasure that will I will probably afflict myself with on Friday, which is the next installment of the Evil Dead movies. You know that. Do Evil you love Dead those? I've remade. never seen any of them. Oh gosh, yes. I should, That's I why should, I said uh, watch a, those. It's a guilty pleasure. Yeah. You uh, you probably ought to watch them. I mean, it, it's a cult win. They are really funny. I mean, they're 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 gory, but with a serious tongue in cheek. I mean, like Army of Darkness. Did you not see Army of Darkness? No. no. Oh, Leo. Okay. Does that well, involve zombies? Because no, I'm not a Sam, fan. 
No, no, no well, okay. it wasn't zombies. It, it, but it's it's really cam- it's campy, tongue in cheek, over the top. Um, and you know, Sam Raimi w- 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 was the producer. Bruce Campbell I love starred Sam in all. Raimi, he's wonderful. And, and Bruce Campbell yeah. starred in all three of the first ones. He's not in this one. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. It was, I mean, back in the. 80s, so this will be a much updated, better, you know, newer, and so forth. But anyway, we'll we'll see how that goes. Okay. And finally, a nice note uh, on a serious <laughs> note uh, from Philip Cook, who wrote, "A week ago, I started my day with a blue screen of death. Not the way you want to start your week. Advising that I had an unmountable boot volume. Oh dear. Efforts by a Dell tech only led him to the conclusion." That we should reformat the drive and lose all my data. Nothing would recognize the drive, and all the check disk commands in the book could not even see it or result in anything but the same blue screen on every reboot, no matter how I started. A Mac store utility that I ran from a downloaded file advised me to return the drive for a replacement. After getting estimates ranging from $400 to $2,700, to recover my data and trying numerous other tricks, he has in quotes, recommended by online chats, etc., I was fortunate to come across Spinrite. At first, the glowing testimonials seemed just too good to be true, and I will admit that I thought they may have even been fake. Of course, he doesn't know me very well, but that's fair enough. He said, so I invested the $89 and downloaded the file and fired it up. At first, I thought that it was going nowhere, because after four hours, it still said 2% complete. I figured I would leave it running over the weekend, and imagine my surprise when I came in this morning, saw the message that it had completed. It booted up, ran check disk, and then started Windows. All I can say is, wow. Woohoo! Thank you for taking the time to create this program. It's bad enough losing data. But I also saved the hours it would have taken to recreate my desktop, links, etc. Needless to say, I am impressed. And image Philip. that drive right now, Philip. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Immediately. Uh, it, the check disk is superfluous after you run spin right, right? It's just doing, it's kind of a poor man's spin right. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's something that's, that Windows often kicks you into right. when it's like thinking, wow, something, we just recovered from something. Let's see if we're, everything's right. okay. But if so you've just passed this, sort of yeah, if yeah. you've passed the spin right test, there's nothing, nothing yep. additional needed. But Windows will make you do it, of course. Hey, uh, before you get into uh, our topic of the day, distributed hash tables, I want to tell you. Actually, you were talking about sci-fi. There's a new book, Audible.com. Uh, Audible's, of course, a sponsor of the show. So let me uh, make sure you know this is an ad. Audible is the audio bookstore we love so very, very much. Hundred thousand books there. I've been a member for thirteen years now. And you I have. I didn't know that. Since 2000. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have over 500 books in my library. That's one of the nice things about Audible. Your books are always yours forever and ever. So you can, uh, especially with the Audible app, which is so pretty, you can, uh, on an iPhone, Android, Blackberry, yeah, Windows 8, they have a Metro version. You can um, always see what's in your library and read it. But this is the new one I'm going to add. Uh, thanks to a computer error. New Yorker Tom Carmody wins the main prize of the Intergalactic Sweepstakes. Tom claims his prize before the error is discovered and is allowed to keep it. However, since Tom is a human from Earth without galactic status and no space-traveling experience, he has no homing instinct that can guide him back to Earth once his odyssey begins. 
and the galactic lottery organizers cannot transport him home. Meanwhile, his removal from Earth has caused a predatory entity to spring into existence, one that pursues and aims to destroy him. Carmody is on the run and ends up transporting from Earth to Earth different phases and realities of the planet, which, of course, is not the time or condition he expects. It's called Dimension of Miracles. It's a comedy sci-fi novel, very much in the tradition of uh, at Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. It was a discovery. Neil Gaiman discovered it. It was written, I think, in the 60s. Neil Gaiman discovered this. It's part of the Neil Gaiman Presents series at Audible. He is one of my favorite kind of dark uh, fantasy novelists. Love his stuff. And um, they asked him to pick some great unknown novels. This is the first one, narrated by John Hodgman. Actually, it's not oh. the first one. I think there's others. Yeah, let me play a little it bit. It had of been a typically unsatisfactory day. Carmody had gone to the office, flirted mildly with Miss Gibbon, disagreed respectfully with Mr. Wainbach, and spent 15 minutes with Mr. Blackwell discussing the outlook for the football giants. So the, uh, I, I can't wait to read this. But anyway. You can get this for free, but there, there's many, many choices, of course. Uh, sci-fi, yes, a very good selection. But also, I read a lot of uh, nonfiction. That's where that End of Money book I've been reading comes from, is audible.com. That's a really good book if you want to know more about money in general, Bitcoin specifically. Um, there's, But there's classics. There's uh, thrillers. There's sexy stuff. The new one, the new sexy one, Fifty Shades of Dorian Gray. Combined. I don't know what I don't know what this is going to be like. I'm going to play a little bit of this. Uh, it's oh. it's Oscar Wilde meets uh, Fifty Shades. The Shade. studio was filled with the rich odor of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amid the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of lilac. I I, I probably shouldn't listen any more of this. It is both hot and funny according to Fred Armisen of Saturday Night Live. Audible.com. So here's the deal. If you go to audible.com slash, let me see what the code is for us, security now. I'm sorry, audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. You can sign up for the gold account. The first month's free. The first book is free. Cancel in the first 30 days. You'll pay nothing, but the book is yours to keep forever, as with all audiobooks. This looks good. The Battle of Bretton Woods, John Maynard Keynes, Harry Dexter White in the Making of a New World Order, part economics, part history, all real. I can't wait. I mean, this is the big problem I have with Audible. If you look at my library, there's so many books in here, and I, and I can't wait. The New Antares Dawn, as you mentioned, all the Michael say, McCollum you stuff. That recently, yep, yes, that's on. I just downloaded that. Um, need to read. Need to listen to that. So many. The Peter F. Hamilton Great North Road is on my list. I had just finished the second book of the Patrick Rothfuss King Killer Chronicles trilogy. So many great books. Anyway, add a book, listen to it, tell you. It's a way to find out if you like audio. I think you will, but it's worth trying. Audible.com. I'm sorry, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And in honor of the release of Dimension of Miracles, Audible's doing a sweepstakes. You know, he the hero of the... Uh, Dimension of Miracles, one of sweepstakes. We're not going to transport you off the planet Earth, but we will transport you to Comic-Con, October 2013 in New York City. So here's the deal. Go to audible.com slash sweeps, and you can enter to win in the drawing of uh, this chance to win a trip for two to New York City. It includes round-trip airfare, a four-night stay, and two four-day passes to New York Comic-Con. A trip for two to New York could be yours. You've got to enter. All you have to do is enter your email. That's it. 
and uh, and you have till April 12th to do it. You don't have to be an Audible member to do it. Just uh, enter your email and you're done. Audible.com slash sweeps to get in the sweepstakes. I just entered it, but I probably shouldn't have because if I win, I'm going to have to give it back, but I guess I won't win. And... Uh, <laughs> And if you want to get a free book, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We do thank Audible for our support of secure for their support of security now. All right, time yeah. to talk hash table distributed. Not just hash tables. Distributed hash tables. Yeah, and again, the I'm unhappy with the 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 label that this has received because it sounds uninteresting. Distributed hash tables is like, well, okay, uh, I mean it's not even accurate. Because the hash ta- the hash tables are not distributed, the ha- hashing is the way you you access or you index a distributed database. So you'll see they're called distributed hash tables. We're calling them that because that's the that's what you'll hear in the future. This is a technology which is part of the internet culture now. We referred to it when we were talking about Tor. Um, as we know, BitTorrent uses it uh, in order to create a database in the cloud. It's the way that peer-to-peer networks and also networks that want that aren't that aren't concerned about a, a central authority shutting them down, which is one of the reasons people switch to a peer-to-peer model. But where, for example, in, in Amazon's case, they have something called Dynamo. Dynamo is their own proprietary database technology based on distributed hash table technology. Okay, so what does a hash have to do with a database? Um, What we know about hashes is that you can put anything into a hash function, and what you get out is a fixed-length, pseudo-random pattern of bits is probably the best way to characterize it. We have talked, for example, in some cloud storage instances of, for example, hashing the contents of a file to create a key which would be then used to encrypt it. And what's clever about that is then the file provides its own key and only somebody else who has the identical file could hash that to get the identical key and then that's the way, for example, a shared hosting, a shared cloud storage system could receive files that are encrypted that it has no knowledge how to decrypt. Anyway, so, so that's, that's an, an example. But the other thing you can do is you could take a, the name of an object and hash it and get a key, essentially, And so that's what distributed hash tables do is they use a hash as it's also sometimes called a mixing function. They they, just to sort of mix the thing up into this this random value. Now, in the case of in the case of BitTorrent, you're wanting to identify uh, files in a big database that various BitTorrent clients have. In Amazon's case, they're wanting to, you know, they've got a, a massive website with incredible number of images and blobs of text and user reviews. And, I mean, just look at how complex a page on Amazon is. Those are not pages that are, that are 
created by some individual. They're all dynamically generated by software, and they're all pulled together from individual bits. So Amazon uses their distributed hash table-based database in order to hold all of this and what what they and I've read their their white paper on Dynamo front to back and their biggest concern is latency. They absolutely know that they have to present a page fast. Period, no matter what. They and they and they've really gone out of their way to to keep the latency of the delivery of their pages down. Other instance uh, other applications may um, of distributed hash tables may have different goals. They may want much more redundancy. So, for example, in a BitTorrent model, you have highly variable availability of this collective database as as individuals on a whim come and go. Um, in Amazon's case, they have got fixed servers, and they want to be able to to, to take a server down and have nothing, you know, and have all of its data become unavailable, but have the whole system continue to function. Um, and if a server fails, even if it's a non-scheduled downing of the server, they want to be able to similarly have there be no effect. But in general, because it's them in a data center that's cooled and it's got power and everything, they don't expect, you know, unexpected events in the, at the same rate as, for example, BitTorrent's individual nodes coming and going from the, the co- collective net. So the common concept here is that you use whatever tag it is to identify an object. It might be one of those quacky-looking GUID, you know, uh, globally unique ID, GUID strings. It might just be the natural name of the file. Whatever it is, you you put it through a hash function in order to, to get the result. Now, Amazon uses MD5. Because for them, it's good enough. Now, now, notice, this is not an instance where the security of MD5 is a problem. This is somewhere where actually the speed of MD5 is a benefit. And the fact that it gives you 128 bits output is sufficient. If you, for some reason, you had an application where you needed more than that, SHA1 gives you 160 bits and SHA256 uh, gives you, you know, 256 bits. So so the goal, regardless of what hash you use, is you're going to get out this string of bits. And the idea is that, and this is the key, we understand listeners of the podcast will get it, that the point is every time you put the same string in, you get the same pseudo-random pattern of bits out. So that's the, that's the key. The hash table or the hash, it maps the, the, the input string into a pseudo-random output. And it does it fairly. And fairness is the key. That is that the, the nature of a, of a cryptographic hash is that if just one bit of the input changes. If in the name you changed this from, from you know, red pixel, you changed it to red pixels, or you, or you, you know, you made a, a tiny change, every bit that you change on average 
inverts 50% of the output hashes bits. So it is extremely sensitive to modification. And the idea is that the hashing function, which is good, evenly distributes the, the results over the whole space. If we, if we were using, for example, MD5 like Amazon has, 128 bits is, is 340 billion, 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 billion combinations. And the point is, you, you, obviously, you're never going to have 340 billion, 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 billion servers to choose among. But you're going to divide this large number somehow into the actual nodes in the network which contain pieces of your database. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the idea is that, that the hash function doesn't discriminate. It's not going to choose some values over others. And, and that's what makes it a good cryptographic hash and not something that, you know, someone whipped up in their basement thinking, oh, this is a really good function. This is the, these, are, these are high quality functions that guarantee an even distribution of results. So how do we turn this long bit string of ones and zeros into a selector of a node? Um, it's interesting, and this sort of harkens back to the oddness of the way the Internet works, where we've talked about how the genius of the Internet is that packets don't necessarily always get where they're going the first time, but the, net, the Internet layers redundancy on top of that in order to solve the problem. Similarly, the designers of the, the distributed hashing index approach said, well, Okay, if nodes are coming and going, then we don't know how many we're going to have at any given time. So how do we divide the total key space, that is the, the number of possible key outputs from the hash, into the number of nodes? Because that's going to change. And also, if... We use the key to index, to, to point to a node. Then um, if we add nodes, how do we like rebalance everything? I mean, th these are difficult problems when it comes to going from sort of the overall glossy, oh, look, let's use a hash to fairly and, you know, distribute storage responsibility across a number of nodes. It's if you knew, for example, that you always had 16 nodes. So you had 16 nodes. Well, you just use the low four bits of the hash. It's that easy because four bits can have any of 16 values, zero through 15. And so you use the four bits, the low four bits of the hash to choose the node and problem solved. Except what if there's you know, 17 nodes. Now you've got a problem because you were using four bits and that only gives you access to 16 nodes, but you've got another node you'd like to use it somehow. So what they decided is sort of bizarre. The, the designers of these systems divide 
the the total key space, the total space of the hash, which, for example, in MD5 is 128 bits, they may just choose, um, okay, say 32 bits out of that 128. We know that 32 bits gives us 4.3 billion combinations. So they they then segment that into sort of ranges, some arbitrary number of ranges, again, way more than they actually have nodes. And then they randomly, and this is the part that's a little, you know, creates some cognitive dissonance, um, they randomly assign these ranges to nodes so that so that when a a key is put through the hash it results in a value that randomly that 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 chooses a node where the data will be stored but but that node has been been chosen in a random fashion the way this happens is imagine imagine a clock where the end connects to the beginning, like, you know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 12 wraps around into 1. So we have a, we have a, a circle or, or a ring. And the, the values of the, the output values of the hash function essentially form a ring from all the bits are 0, that like at 12 o'clock, and increasing value as we go around this clock face until we get to to midnight or back around to, 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 to zero, which is all one bits. So you can see how it's possible to, to map the, the values coming out of the hash into locations in a circle. So the nodes choose some number of locations at random on the circle. And the number of locations chosen is a function of sort of the, the as I was mentioning before, BitTorrent would use a different sort of strategy than Anna, Amazon's Dynamo. But it might be, you know, 100. So just say 100. And then the number doesn't matter either. So each node chooses a hundred locations at random around this circle where the circle is indexed by the output of the hash. And the way the, way the logic works, because the spots on the circle that the nodes chose will almost certainly not correspond to keys that come out of the hash. Because... You know, we're dealing with 340 billion, 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 billion possible keys. So the idea is when we want to look up which node contains the data, we, we run the name of, of the file we're wanting to look up through the hash and get out this 128-bit value, which identifies a location on the circle. We then go clockwise until we find the first node who, who 
the, the, the first node that chose that spot, the clockwise from where we started spot on the circle. That's the node that we ask for the data. And, and that gives, so that's sort of the, 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 the primary owner of the data. Redundancy comes from allowing the some number of nodes in succeeding locations of that circle to carry copies. So if we ask that first node and don't get a response from it, then we, we move again clockwise to the next spot on the circle that a node chose, and it will have a copy of the data from the previous node. So, so what this has done, quacky as it is, um, it works. Um, is this allows us? Th- 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 this that allows- should be the motto of this show: wacky <laughs> as it is, it works. Wh- wacky as it is, it works. <laughs> so nodes appear, and they say, "Hi there, I want to participate in this wacky shared database." So I'm going to choose a hundred spots at random. Now their responsibility is to begin carrying the data from the four upstream nodes, right? So they, because, because, because all of the four upstream nodes are going to be relying on that node as successive levels of backup. So a node appears and it says, okay, um, here I am. Oh, and there is a, there's a metadata communication in the network, there's actually a protocol called gossip, which is how the nodes talk. They gossip among themselves, not in a big hurry, because there's so much resilience and redundance in the system that it is not important if the if nodes if the news of nodes coming and going doesn't doesn't propagate instantly. It's all kind of very relaxed. So so the node a new node comes in and says hi there. Um, here's the hundred spots I've chosen, uh, everybody. So everybody update your knowledge of me, and I'm going to go start copying, replicating data from the four nodes that are counterclockwise upstream of me. And so this node goes and asks the other guys for their data. And again, it's not in a hurry. It's redundant. So it, it would like to get the data, and it will in time and and hopefully long enough to be of use. And so the idea then is that clients, wherever they may be, who want to access the data in this database, they ask any one of these nodes, very much like a Tor node, the you know, Tor nodes would be typical distributed database nodes. They ask any of these nodes for the data. The that node that's been gossiping with the other nodes has a maybe up to date, maybe it's a little out of date. It doesn't really matter, but it's got sort of the latest news in the gossip circle. Um, it hashes the key, uses its own most recent copy of the gossip news to identify where on the ring this would be, and that tells it which node is primary storage for the data. It then asks that node 
for the data, saying, hey, here's a key. You know, do you have the actual data corresponding to this key? And if so, send it to this guy. And if that if that node says, nope, I don't have it, then we know that there are redundant copies. Oh, and if the node doesn't answer at all, if it just disappeared off the network, it's like, oh, okay, that begins to propagate the news through the gossip channels. Um, meanwhile, we know that there are other nodes that have it. And so what ends up happening is with this very sort of lazy, relaxed, gossipy protocol, the, the data survives as individual nodes in this in this network come and go over time it's duplicated it's redundant um anybody can be asked for any data and they more or less enough know how to find it and it's again it's crazy it's wacky but it works node and roulette that's that's how dis yes that's how distributed <laughs> hash tables and the databases behind them function it's a little unsettling for someone who likes to, you know, abs absolutely know where something is located. Um, but the advantage is it is there, you know, chunks of this can just disappear and it doesn't matter. The whole thing continues. There's no single point of failure and it can be, you know, it can be tuned for speed. It can be tuned for resilience. It can be tuned for 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 redundancy, you know, you know whatever characteristics your particular application has, and if you look at the Wikipedia article on distributed hash tables, there's a bunch of projects. Apache has a, a project that is doing this, and and Freenet, I think it is, that, uh, is based on this, and so it is an, a technology of the internet. I imagine we'll be uh, talking about it in the future, and of course, Bitcoin is the same thing. Bitcoin is a distributed oh. network well, of of individual miners, yeah. Yeah. You don't have to be a miner to love Bitcoin. And now that we can accept Bitcoin donations, I love it too. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Steve Gibson, there you go, distributed hash tables. It's all clear as mud, and uh, I hope everybody understood that. <laughs> and if you didn't, well, you know what? You can listen to it again. You could even read it because we've got text transcriptions of the show and 16-kilobit audio available at Steve's site, grc.com. We have uh, on-demand audio and video, higher quality of both, uh, available at our site, twit.tv slash sn. And if you go to grc.com, do check out Spinrite, world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Check out the new fingerprints feature. Check out Shields Up. Make sure your router is safe. All of that stuff. Everything's free except Spinrite. That's his bread and butter. So support Steve because he does such a great job uh, every week on the show. And we really are grateful to you, Steve. Um, and if you go to grc.com slash feedback, you can ask questions. Steve will be doing a Q&A episode. Next Security week. willing next week. Hackers willing next week. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Leo. A lot of fun. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.